This is Redefining the Influencer, a podcast that shares the awesome stories of those who have dedicated themselves to living a life of service. And I'm your host, Mike Burns. I am honored to have on the show today one of the most amazing and inspirational people that I have ever had the privilege of interacting with. Christina Libby is a sought-after thought leader, brand builder, and technology insider. Her career encompasses advising and building large-scale and high-growth companies. She also has one of the coolest jobs in the world as the chief science officer at Hypergiant. Even with this big job, Christina somehow still finds time to positively impact lives and serve as a beacon of hope and love through the Floral Heart Project. Hello and welcome back to Redefining the Influencer. We have an interesting guest today, someone who I only had a chance to really interact with for a few minutes, but even the few minutes before the podcast launch has been extremely interesting. We've talked about everything from her dog to her last name, which happens to be the same as an individual who's been on the podcast before, Libby, to just kind of her passion. And just in that short 20-minute interaction, I'm excited about what we're going to talk about during this podcast and what everyone's in store for. But without further ado, I want to introduce you to today's guest, Miss Christina Libby. Christina, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, Christina, I know that you are new to the Redefining the Influencer podcast. You might have listened to a few, but what we like to do in the beginning is have all of our guests lay out who they are, where they're from, just a quick overview of Christina Libby. I think this is like a really hard exercise for me. Um, I am one of those people who probably does a few too many things, but the reason I'm on the podcast um, is I think largely related to a public art project that I have been doing for about the last five months related to COVID-19 called the Floral Heart Project, which is a It's a public art project around creating grieving spaces for those who have lost someone from COVID or are really struggling um, through this moment. And and I think that's everyone. I think whether we're struggling because we've lost a job or we're struggling because we've lost a way of life or we're struggling because we have actually lost someone in our lives, this is a really difficult time for us as a community. And so Outside of that, I am the chief science officer at a company called Hypergiant. We're an AI and emerging technology company. I teach at NYU. I am a kind of rather prolific writer as well. And I'm sure there are other things, but that is that is sort of the bulk of what I do. And I'm based in New York City. Well, that's awesome. So a chief science officer. I'm not sure everyone is experienced or knows a chief science officer. So tell us a little bit about what you do as the chief science officer. Yes. So Hypergiant is a really interesting company. We are focused on what we call emerging technology, but specifically looking at artificial intelligence in the areas of space, defense, and critical infrastructure. And so for me, I am not highly technical, meaning I don't have a PhD in a hard science, 
But what I do do is I spend a lot of my time just like reading everything and looking at what is happening across a bunch of different industries and trying to think about where are things going in the next, say, three to 10 years? And where are areas that we as a company have the capacity to work in and the ability to adapt against? And so a lot of my job is spent learning about crazy things like, um, you know, new technology to use peat bogs to capture carbon or technology to use tiles to distill water to make water more drinkable. And so it's a lot of that kind of thing of sort of exploring the really cool, interesting science that people are doing in the world and then trying to figure out what we can do. The interesting thing I think about Hypergiant from a service perspective is that the company was set up to be service-oriented, right? It's based on this idea that we want to deliver the, on the future we were promised and, and that there is a big break between the way that we utilize technology now and the world we have right now and, and the world we were sort of promised even 10 or 20 years ago, right? It's a lot more dystopian. It's a lot of technology not necessarily being used for good. And so it's really interesting. I think about my job a lot is like, where are places that we can invest money or time or energy to help positively change the world. And so I don't know that that is what everyone's chief science officer job is like, but that's what mine is. I find it really interesting and insightful when you're talking about technology and your job and what Hypergiant does, because I think a lot of times people think about technology and it often is a force for evil. And this is so top of mind to me because I was just watching this uh, Netflix documentary on like social platforms Mm -hmm. and how they mine your information. And there's these uh, big Oz-like wizards behind a curtain manipulating you. And then obviously in the election season and tampering and cyber and all this other stuff that we hear about with technology you automatically think outside of some efficiencies that technology brings, technology is just not a good thing. And so hearing about Hypergiant and hearing about what you do as the chief science officer in order to drive better outcomes for people in all sorts of different ways is so interesting. What drove you into this space? Well, I think there's two things. So, you know, you just touched on a lot of topics that are pretty dear to my heart. So, One is the way that social media is weaponized. The second is this idea of sort of cyber weaponization as well. So I came to Hypergiant after spending about two years working with a company that worked in offensive cybersecurity. So that meant people who were working with people who were actively thinking about how to attack and weaponize digital spaces, predominantly with nation states. And I think I went to Hypergiant because I was like, oh, a technology company that is thinking about doing good for the world. Oh my goodness, sign me up. Because I think one of the problems with technology that we don't really talk about very often is that in America, we let technology guide us rather than guiding technology. And so the way that technology has been set up in the U.S. is that these different technology companies dictate the future for us. And we respond to that vision of the future. When you look at a company like China, and I am not advocating that we should be like China, but I do think the model is interesting. China sets a plan for the development of their nation and the technology that they think is instrumental in developing that. And then companies go to work building technology against the demands of a nation. And that means that there is a sort of a long tenure track with a really specific vision of where they want to get 
that everyone is working for together, as opposed to in America, where we have different companies sort of working at different things against their own objective with the idea of large-scale monetization. And many of these companies are sort of couching that technology growth within the conversation of it being good for humanity, but not many people are actually actively doing that. Or if they are, they're doing it sort of against a very narrow frame. And we expect technology companies to not only be technology companies, but to also have this idea of what's best for society. And I think that's largely flawed, particularly when you sort of look at like the monolithic identity of people who run technology companies. They're largely have similar passions, have a similar aesthetic, are sort of similar race and gender. And so they are just presenting one point of view about America. And so a really long answer to your question is, Part of what drove me to do this was this idea that there could be a company that is looking at a conversation holistically and is bringing in people who have like a much more holistic understanding of the type of world that we want to create and are thinking more about what does the future look like that we want than what is the technology that we can bring to the market as fast as we can to sort of improve efficiency. Like, that was really interesting of thinking about technology as a tool for creating a society that was good and just and equitable. It was a really powerful idea when I went to join Hypergiant. I completely agree with everything that you're saying around technology being leveraged more for individual or organizational gain and not for the betterment of society or community. And I think there's a big lesson there, not only from the community betterment standpoint, but also you hinted at the power of diversity and inclusion, of gathering different perspectives, of different ideas, of different ways of looking at the world and leveraging those differences in order to drive a better outcome for the larger body. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's sort of the thing of the moment right now, right? Which is this idea that like democracy breaks when we don't participate in it. And, but democracy as a structure is really fluid, right? Because it's based on community. And so if we don't like what technology companies are doing, we have to actively engage in democracy in order to change what that is, right? We have to say like, no, you can't have access to all of our data, no, we don't want you to manipulate our opinions by allowing this type of technology. Or, you know, I don't want Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg to define my America, right? Like, I don't think that they are the right people to talk about or to think about or to create the world that I want to live in. And I think the way that we change that is community-driven. And I think what we need right now is we need to figure out why we're in community with each other. And I'm working on a book on this idea, but it is this concept of like, why are we human? Like, why are we America, right? Like, who do we want to be for the world? And there was a really interesting article in the New York Times last week that was that, you know, that this election is the election for the soul of America. And I would argue that that is not what is at stake. What we need is who is running for the vision of America? Like, who is pushing against that ideal? And I think part of the problem in our society right now is that we don't know who we want to be 
to the world. We don't know what we want our society to look like. We don't even know how to have conversations with each other. And we still don't want to look at like the deep, dark, scary things in our past. And I think that until we set a vision for this is the America that we want, and maybe what that vision is, is a return back to sort of our constitutional ideals, which is great. But I would say like, we're not adhering to that. Like, I don't know if you ask people in America, like, why are we America? If you could even find like a thread of commonality in that answer against large population groups. And that's about community, right? Like we need to come together, figure out who we want to be and what we're doing. And then technology companies, other companies, other industries can work against helping us all achieve that vision. But until we figure it out, I think that's part of what feels so lost is we're just like, in this stew of different people trying to work against their own ideas and us, I almost feel like we don't even have the tools or the framework to understand how to come together and create a broad vision. And I think coming together means everyone, right? It's not rich people. It's not white people. It's not poor people, right? It's not of a specific religion or a specific geography. It's literally, we need to figure out a way to come together, everyone together. That is so spot on. You're right. We're a nation now that seems to lack identity and lack commonality. And one of the reasons why we do the podcast, one of the reasons why we created the company Service First is for us, the one thing that seems to bring people together of all different backgrounds, of all different belief systems, at all different socioeconomic statuses is the concept of service. When a hurricane hits Louisiana and everything is out and people are stranded, it doesn't matter if you're a Republican, it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat, it doesn't matter if you're black, white, a woman, male, rich, poor, people seem to rally together in order to serve and help. Even if it's in that moment, that moment and the concept of service seems to bring people together. So I think you're exactly right that we don't have an identity, that there seems to be no common thread across the board. But we hope through showing and sharing stories of service and the impact of service, maybe that is the one thing that is not debatable that people can rally around. Well, and I think that helps create community, right? So I don't know if you know this or not, but in Rwanda, following the genocide in 1994, they have gone through a bunch of practices to heal and bring back community. And my master's degree is in international security. I studied genocide pretty much exclusively. But what Rwanda does now is one day a month is a day of community service. And it is, uh, I believe, mandatory for everyone who is able to be involved, to be involved in this day of service. And part of what that is about is actually creating a fabric of togetherness, right? So that we can come together and people can engage in communal caring. And I think that's something, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, we saw this idea of kind of communal caring, right? Where a lot of people were like getting food for older people, or they were, you know, donating money to a lot of different causes. I think we saw this um, following the Black Lives Matter movement, right? When that was really hitting a crescendo, tons of people were donating. And I think one of the hard things is like, how do we sustain a service mentality? And also in a society in which there are so many things to respond to, right? And I think to that is hard about finding 
the community that you can serve and the ways in which serving feels tied to sort of who you are, because I think that's the best service, right? Where it almost doesn't feel like service. It just feels like a really authentic exploration of what you're doing. And I mean, you mentioned pre-podcast, you were talking about having service pieces created for like teachers, right? Like people who have served, you know, at something that is also so natural for them. And I do think that is something we don't often investigate in ourselves, which is how can you serve in a way that is most authentic to who you are? Because that is also how you will best connect with the community that you are surrounded by. And I will say that, you know, I started in the pandemic feeling really heartbroken, like we didn't have spaces to grieve, that there was all of these people dying, all of these things happening. And yet you didn't see any of the visual icons of moments of trauma, right? Following 9-11, you saw pictures everywhere. There were flowers everywhere. School shootings happen. And there are all of these sort of visual spaces where you can come and grieve. And I was so heartbroken that people were being sort of left at home to grieve without community, which is, I think, is incredibly unnatural as a human experience. And yet, I didn't know what to do. The only thing I knew how to do, right, was like make some kind of art for people, which was a natural expression of who I was in service of all of these people who were grieving. And I think more than the money I have donated to causes, more than sort of work where I have stepped up and been a volunteer at a nonprofit or whatever, Finding this way to just like so purely express my emotions for some other community has been just incredibly fulfilling on so many levels and then really meaningful to people too, right? And I think sometimes we talk about service and people are like, oh, I don't want to volunteer at a food bank. Like these things don't feel very meaningful for me. And so I think this is this interesting service challenge, which is like, what is authentically you and how can you put that into the world in a way where it really helps other people is when you have this really magical space between like your ability to serve and other people's ability to receive. It's so great to hear your perspective because your perspective is literally the foundation of what we believe in at Redefine an Influencer and Service First is that service comes in so many different ways, shapes, forms, but it has to be aligned with who you are. And it's not tied to an external uniform or a title, i.e. doctor, nurse, firefighter. It's tied to an act. And that act can be big or small. And you in yourself don't necessarily have to perform the act in order to serve. What we always say is sharing the story of service, of someone else's service, is a form of service in itself. So when you're talking about the Floral Heart Project and the artwork and the visuals associated, that sharing of the visuals and the sharing of the stories behind the visuals is actually a way to serve. So tell me a little bit about the Floral Heart Project and what you do. Yeah. So the Floral Heart Project are these large-scale hearts made of roses, and they're very specifically that way, right? So flowers are a very traditional gift when someone is mourning, right? There's a lot of research, sort of psychology research about the fact that 
people who receive flowers feel an instant moment of joy. Everyone, like 100% of people across the board. And so it is a way to sort of spark just a positive emotion when someone is in the depths of grief. And then hearts are just such a visual iconography of love, right? And so the project started with these large floral hearts because I just, I wanted to reach out to people and be like, you are not alone. I see you. Like, I feel your grief and your heartbreak. Like, let me send you love, right? Like, here is a gift to you. That is like a love language of mine. I am someone who gifts things. And it was just sort of like a gift for the community. And then, you know, I took some photos and I sent them to people and it just sort of struck a chord where people were just like, I love these. And so I just kept making more and more of them. And then over time, um, 1-800-Flowers actually reached out and they commissioned pieces and they now donate all of the flowers and they pay for my time and energy and for people who are sort of involved in the project in other ways. And, and so we've been able to grow and we've been able to do these in Times Square and Bryant Park and Herald Square. And then we've actually grown to the point where now we have created these um, these vigil moments where we bring in music and we do sort of a more formal laying process and it's become almost ritualized in the experience we've brought in dancers and we are doing a number of these um, continuing throughout the winter. And the intent is that we create spaces. I used to call them memorials, like almost like these decentralized living memorials, because I do think we need some kind of COVID memorial. But I think perhaps what it really is, is creating space for people to grieve and giving them a space where people feel permission to truly and break down with other people for a moment, right? Like, this is okay. Um, because I don't think as a society, we're really giving people the opportunity to grieve right now, right? We're like, you need to toughen up. We will make it through this moment. It's very like, rah, 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 America. The problem with this, and you would understand this as a soldier, is that when we disenfranchise or sort of delay that grief, it has a much more harmful impacts down the road. So there's a lot of work with soldiers where, you know, you're in a situation where you don't feel like you can grieve the loss of someone who was fighting with you, the loss of someone that you love. And so you keep doing the work because that is your job, right? Do the work, make it through whatever you can. But then people return home. And when that pressure is off and you can start to finally process those emotions, so many people end up in such a heightened level of PTSD where you have heightened levels of anxiety and depression, physical violence, substance abuse. And so we're actually at risk of that happening with America, which is if we don't let people grieve and process in this moment and have these emotions, then we can end up with a much heightened level of people having relatively severe PTSD following the pandemic which will completely overwhelm our mental health system. And we see this in moments like natural disasters. So following both Hurricane Katrina and Sandy, there have been studies in which 10 to 15% of the population ended up with PTSD. If we imagine that at a national level and 10 to 15% of the American population ending up with severe levels of PTSD, that could really wreak havoc across those sort of the health and fabric of America, right? What helps to offset that is community. And I think you know, soldiers talk about this. There was a, sort of a really great book called Tribe by Sebastian Younger on the topic as well, mm-hmm. which is that the hard part for soldiers when they return back to communities, and I'm sorry, I feel like I'm explaining this to someone who knows it so well. No, no, but, this is brilliant. But, Keep going. But, but you know, you 
you return back and it's because you no longer have that community of people you fought with and you feel alone. And that loneliness is what people are feeling here so much. And so to combat loneliness, to create a space to grieve, that is based on community, right? And so each one of these floral heart spaces is meant to remind people that there is community. Like there are people who care about you. There is someone who is thinking about you. And for me, so much of what it is, is like for a long time, these were anonymous. Like I didn't need people to know I existed. I just needed people to know that someone existed who went through the effort to make this big floral heart and lay it for them in a place that it would surprise them in their day. Like it was just created as a sheer act of love. And um, now being able to create these vigils and to watch people come and have them say, I didn't feel like I could grieve my aunt. I don't feel like anyone noticed my sister died. My husband passed and no one has really been able to do anything. They are just numbers, right? And so I haven't, thankfully, knock on wood, lost anyone close to me to COVID. But it feels like it is my responsibility to help people create a space to share their stories, to talk about their moments, in part because I am not grieving in this moment. Actually, the pandemic moment for me has been filled with growth and opportunity and positivity. And I feel strong and healthy and recovered, which means that I can create space for people who are suffering so deeply. Like, why would we expect people who are grieving the loss of a loved one to then think anything about community care, right? Like, that is not their responsibility in that moment. Their responsibility in that moment is to grieve and to figure out all of the ways that they need to grieve to be able to process those emotions over time. And I think the responsibility of the rest of us is to catch them, is to figure out a way to elevate their stories and have their conversations come to life. I um, will stop and let you ask a question, but I will share this one story first, which is um, I met this wonderful woman, Fiona Tulip, who lost her mother to COVID-19. Her mom was a nurse and she was diagnosed and then she was dead one week later. And Fiona is deeply grieving the loss of her mother and while she has a one-year-old child. And yet she is out there telling people stories, helping other people to help tell these stories. Coordinate, she coordinated the first vigil with me. And I look at that and I just think, how much are we asking of this woman that she is having to mourn her mother and that she also feels like there is no one out there who is helping her tell her story. So she is rising above and beyond and like suffering in the depths of her grief while also creating like these spaces for other people to process their grief and tell their stories and to advocate for political change so that we don't end up in this situation again. Like that is so much for her to have to do because the rest of us are afraid to talk about dying. You know, like that seems to me so sad when all we have to do is I make floral hearts. That's not the answer for everyone, but everyone can do something in this moment to help reduce the burden of grief on everyone who is suffering. So 216,000 people have died of COVID or more now, more 220. I'm going to get, I haven't looked at the news this morning, but for everyone who has died, there are some place between two and nine people deeply and directly immediately impacted. So that's some place between half a million people 
and almost 2 million people who could be suffering extreme amounts of grief in this moment. 1.8 million people is like, that's an entire state, you know, a small state like Maine, but it's still an entire state of people. And so it's like, all we need to do right now is think about like, how can we make that better for them? Because otherwise we'll end up with millions of people suffering extreme grief who feel alienated and abandoned by their community. And that is going to tear apart an already fragile America. It's interesting to think about the beginning of this conversation and and where we are now. And we've talked a lot about threads and, and commonalities. But when I think about the Floral Heart Project and I think about the imagery of a heart and I think about the purpose of a heart and we go back to points of commonality as humans, the fact that our anatomies and our makeups are the same and that we're all fueled by this machine inside of us called the heart that beats relatively at the same rate for everybody. And when one heart stops, it's the responsibilities for all the other hearts to be just a little bit harder to make up for the sound and the power that we no longer have. And when I listen to your project and I listen to your mission and your message, it's really to be there to kind of make up for and to fill the gap for the heart that is no longer there. And it's so powerful. And I couldn't help but to think of the image of an orchestra in the percussion section. And one drum beating is strong. But when you have multiple drums beating at the same rate, it creates this sound and this energy and this power that you know, you just can't replicate just by one single drum. So I just love what you're doing. I I think it's the epitome of service. I think it's the epitome of selfless acts that don't really drive any benefit to you as a person, but really drive benefit to the person you're touching and ultimately to the larger human race. Yeah. I mean, there's two things. One, I think that's like, you have just said it in such a beautiful way, right? This idea is sort of like, how do we beat for the hearts we've lost, right? And I think part of, one of the things that's so sad about America is like, we're so afraid to talk about dying, right? But like, we all die. Like as much as we have the commonality of having the exact same anatomy and like a relatively same heartbeat, it's like, Death is literally the only thing that happens to all of us, right? Like we all experience the same moment. It's a very actual part of being human. Talking about death, being there for other people when they're dying helps us to live better lives, right? Like it helps us to have a better human experience when we know what we would like our own sort of death to be like or our own experience of dying. And I I will say, you know, you said something interesting, which is that this is a selfless act, right? Like it is a true act of service. And I want to challenge you on that a little bit only because this is probably the most authentic aspect of service I have ever done. And I was raised in like a church going family, you know, like we like did a lot of community stuff my entire life. My mom is a hardcore environmentalist. So we did every garbage pickup and all of those things. I have gotten so much out of this authentic act of 
service. Like the act isn't about me, but it has also changed me so much. I think sometimes we think about service as like a thing that we do selflessly. And I think because of that, people maybe are like, what's in it for me? Right? Like it, I think in our culture, it is like hard to do that. And yet I have interacted with an entirely new community. I have been able to make art in places that I would have never made them before. I'd be able to hear these stories I have never heard before. I am sort of able to take on sort of these new and, and wild ideas and found communities of people who support me in the creative expression of these things I want to do that has been personally so fulfilling as well, right? Like I have found characteristics inside myself or even sort of this strange role of, of being someone who holds these vigil rituals, which is like, you know, like a role that I take upon incredibly humbly and with a true sense of awe being able to do it, but also has really sort of allowed me to feel a different level of connection with other people. And so I think that's like not to be missed as well, right? That like service is never a one-sided experience that actually, I think when we are authentically serving at like our true capacity, I sometimes wonder if we benefit more from it or as much from it as the community of people we're serving. And so like the reason you engage in service is not just to help other people, but it is to totally transform your life through the act of serving other people. And I completely agree, which I know we're wrapping up on time. I want to ask you to that point, for those who are still trying to figure out this service thing, where they fit into this larger service equation, what recommendations would you give to them? So I recently read this book about dying called The Lost Art of Dying. And that book talks about how to live well. And it talks sort of about four things, but I'll just only name a couple of them. So one is that to die well is about having community. So it's having people who are there with you. And the other is understanding what you think about religiously, philosophically, spiritually, about what happens to life when you die. And the third is how you want to be remembered when you die. So most people don't spend a lot of time thinking about that and planning about that. And I would say, like, exploring those questions yourself helps you figure out who you are and who you want to be. And I think when you authentically understand who you are and you know what your powers are that you can give to the world, that's when service becomes really just part of what you're doing. I mean, I think for you, right, as a soldier, like, that is not a world everyone can take on. Those are not innate qualities that every person is naturally drawn to. But if they are your qualities and you are so fully expressing them, then you are able to serve in that way. And I think the challenge to any of us is the best way that we can serve the world is to know who we are, to have done the research, to become a full and capable human, and then to go from there and figure out like, okay, now that I've done my work and I'm a mostly put together, clear version of who I am, I'm not hiding behind anything. How do I bring that to other people? And I think that exploration, that allows you to really serve in a way that is meaningful to you and to the people around you. 
And Christina, for those who want to learn more about the Floral Heart Project, and if they want to get involved, if they want to be a recipient of a floral heart, how do they go about doing that? Oh my goodness. Well, come join me. That would be amazing. I love that. Um, You can find out more on our website, which is floralheartproject.com. And um, you can follow at Instagram. My artist handle is lightverselight, uh, VS, light, VS, light, which is largely based on this idea that um, you don't fight darkness, you have to fight other light and you have to do it with more light. And so I want people who want to sort of shed the light and be there for other people. So um, do reach out. I would love to involve everyone. I absolutely love it. This has been such a amazing, fun, and enlightening conversation. And I just want to thank you for what you do in the space of technology and science, what you do in the form of teaching, obviously what you do when it comes to giving back through the Floral Heart Project. But most of all, I want to thank you for always living a life of service first and have a wonderful and impactful day. Thank you. You too. Christina's story influences us to never let anything constrain our ability to think big and that the power of something as simple as a flower can serve as a reminder to people that they are not alone. She also reaffirms that who you are and what you do can coexist. Continue to be unapologetically kind and make this world a better place, one act of service at a time. Thanks for listening. Before we go, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen and visit our website, liveservicefirst.com to learn more about Christina's amazing story of service. I'll catch you all again this time next week. This podcast is brought to you by Service First and produced by Human Group Media.